Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. and thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really glad you're here with me. In the Southern Hemisphere, we're finally starting to warm up as we head into summer, so I'm enjoying longer days and wearing less clothing. I hope wherever you are, the climate's being kind to you too. Lots coming up this hour. We're going to meet the guys who made this song famous right around the world. from the five-man electrical band who hailed from Ottawa in Canada. And thanks to a request from Jade in Nashville in the US, we're also going to catch up with singer-songwriter Kelly Lang, whose dad used to be the road manager for country legend Conway Twitty. Kelly will tell us all about her performances with people like Sir Barry Gibb, Ronnie Millsap, Loretta Lynn, and her dear friend, the late Olivia Newton-John. But first we head across to Sweden to meet a songwriter and guitarist who's best known for his work for the group ABBA. I'm sure you're going to enjoy his story. Have I pronounced your name correctly? Yeah, yes. I'm excited to hear all about this wonderful career you're enjoying. I'm in the middle of it, actually, though I have been working for rather many years and still love it. Take us back to the beginning. It started Elvis Heartbreak Hotel started the whole thing for me, 1956. The year after that, 1957, I was in school and I was making a woodwork class, yeah. One day I looked in into the teacher room. He had a big acoustic guitar hanging on the wall. So I asked him, I would like to make one like that. He asked me, can you make it? You have to buy all material yourself and you have to go to extra to lessons too. And I said, everything, I want to do it. I was 12 years old. And it took me one year to be lit. Amazing. So you could actually play on that guitar once it was finished, you could use it? Absolutely. And I bought a chord book. Since my mother was a piano teacher, she taught me how to, the music, how to read a little bit. And I noticed immediately, this is my instrument. I had the feeling for playing. Did your parents support you in this? In the very beginning, they thought, oh, Jan has a hobby. It's nice. But after a while, they noticed I was a passion and I had to leave home <laughs> in secret because they didn't want me. They want me to do my lessons in school. But I, want, I went out playing instead. So my father came. When I played in a concert, he came in through the audience up to the stage and told me, Janne, you stop this and you have to go home and do your lessons. In front of the audience. Oh, no. <laughs> in the middle of a concert. Uh, the effect of that was uh, it, it had the opposite effect on me because if, if it's forbidden, it must be very interesting to do it. So yeah. it's opened up a new world for me. You must yeah. have been really embarrassed, though. Yeah, I was. I, I was ashamed, actually. And, and the, my... The guys who I played with, they said, what, what's happening, Janne? What's, even today, I, I got a mail from a guy who was there and he couldn't believe it really happened, but it did. How old were you at the time? 13, 14. Imagine <laughs> how the feeling today. So I had to fight for my own. Yeah. And that maybe it's, I still have the feeling because I sometimes I think they, they underrate me. Even today they do because I'm not singing. I just play guitar, but I always like to get the recognition for the musician and for the electric guitar. It's yeah, for sure. me, it's very important. Yeah. How come you never added your own vocals? I don't sing so well. <laughs> I can sing because I write music for vocals and for singers, 
but they sing so much better than I do. So I leave it to them. Uh, Bob Dylan didn't sing very well either. <laughs> yeah, I think it's you should do what you're best on. You played with several different pop bands through the 60s. There was one that had some kind of success called the Sleepstones. Tell me yes. a little bit about them. From the beginning, we were all uh, students in school. And that was nice. That band was nice because we put the music in front. We were not, There were a lot of bands in the 60s who were teenage idols, you know. We had a couple of Swedish bands, Ola and Janglis, Targis and Hounds, and uh, who were very good looking, but we let the music speak. And um, Jana, yeah. it wasn't long until you met members of the band ABBA. Of course, they hadn't formed into ABBA yet. Um, share no. the share the story around meeting them. Yeah, when I started as a session musician, I started that 1970. And I had met Benny Andersson when he played with the Hepstars. And in at the university, I met Björn Ulvius. He was studying economics, as, as I did. And then uh, I had uh, working a little bit for Stikan Andersson and formed his uh, record company, Polar. And Björn and Benny were hired by Stikan to be producers, to find young, talented Swedish young guys. And they found two guys, one called Harpo, and the other one was Ted Järvistad. And I went up to the office and uh, Ted was sitting there. He was 15 years old. His music was fantastic. He was beautiful songs and he was charismatic, actually. And uh, when Benny asked me, what do you think, Janis? I said, he's terrific. He's fantastic. Uh, then you, you join us and, and you re-record with him. Yeah, of course. And then we started recording 1971. We started recording Ted Edistot's first album. And when he, when he had done his vocals, they said, we, we need a choir. We, we called the girls. It was Agneta Felskog and Anne-Fried Lyngstad. And they made a choir behind Teddy Adestad. Everybody who was playing on Ted's first album, we got a call from Björn and Ben and said, we, are, we have made a, a tune on our own. People need love, which was the real first real ABBA tune. People need hope, people need loving. I worked with ABBA and uh, we tried so many things in the studio and it was, it was a fantastic time, very creative. So you were really there before ABBA was ABBA and in, and in some yes. ways responsible for bringing the four of them together? Yeah, I, I can't say I was responsible for that. I, I always, when I do my concerts, I said, it, it was because of we had played with Teddy Adderstad and Björn and Benny produced Teddy Adderstad. The first four, four albums with Teddy Adderstad, Björn and Benny produced it and Annefried and Agneta were made the choir behind it. And we were the same guys playing on Abba's record that played on Teddy Adderstad's record. So we got, it was like a small wrecking crew, you know. From the very beginning it was, I don't think they exactly knew what they were going to be but uh, it developed 
So were you upset that you missed out in being the core of ABBA, that it was only the four of them? No, I, I think, I mean, Bjorn and Benny was uh, doing, uh, Benny mostly, he had made the songs, but we, when we recorded, they had no, was nothing written. He, Benny played it on piano and we sat down and wrote the, the chords down and, and then we played it for a while and said, do you have, is somebody have some uh, ideas of an introduction or something? But, but how should we play that? And we worked it out in the studio from the very beginning, in the first album and the second album, and a little bit on the third album. But after that, Benny had made up his musical mind, and then he, he knew exactly in which direction the music should go on. first two albums we were like jamming in the studio until we finally got the music together. And what did you think about the music? How was that for your ear? Yeah, it was it was nice music. It was always very creative and I was involved in a recording with Johnny Nash, an American vocalist. He was supposed to write music for a Swedish movie. And when he realized, oh, this is a good session musicians, we were doing uh, demos for his new album. And then suddenly he, he had met a uh, composer and he brought him to Sweden to teach us to play new music. And the new music was reggae and the guy was Bob Marley. So I worked with Bob Marley in the studio for creating a song for Johnny Nash. So it was the same type of recording. We sat down and wrote the lyrics down and we formed the arrangements with the musicians. Yana, which was the song that you worked with Bob Marley for Johnny Nash on? Stir it up. Rented a house in uh, 1971, and in that house, Bob Marley wrote all the songs which he recorded in 1972 in London. He had written those tunes in Stockholm, 1971, in a basement. What was he like? He was very shy. He, he didn't say very much. He just told me how to play, you know, take it easy, laid back, you know, don't push it, you know. <laughs> it was very nice. You got some influences, which I took along to some of the Ava tunes, sitting in a palm tree. If you notice the, the introduction, I, I came with that idea. <laughs> down at people passing by sitting here no one can harm me they just stare at me and wonder why no need to bother i'm gonna stay up Sun goes down, I'll be the bluest 
that was uh, inspired by Bombardier, certainly to reggae. Was he smoking marijuana all the time already? A lot. <laughs> yeah, the studio was full of smoke. And that's obviously why he was so laid back. Yeah, I think so. Did you learn to be more laid back from him? Yeah, I think I learned a little bit of that playing with him, yeah. Amazing. Through the 70s, you kept working with ABBA. You appear on many of their songs, don't you? And in particular, the song Waterloo, which won the European yeah. Song Contest. I had some small ideas in arrangement, arrangement in the, yeah. In 1973, I started my own first solo album. That was the most selling record for six weeks in Sweden. Those uh, six weeks, I sold more than Teddy Adestad and ABBA. My first album was recorded in 73, the second one, 74, 75, recorded an uh, album called Catharsis, and that was released in the States. And uh, I had a fantastic review in Rolling Stone. So they came over and listened to me live, and they said, well, do you want to record in Hollywood? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Why not? There's Jeff Pecoro on drums, Mike Pecoro on bass, Steve Pecoro on keyboard, and their father, Joe Pecoro. And uh, the, the tune is Happy Feet. just went on and on from there because you wrote a, a musical, you've done a biography, you released three albums in 2017. You've been so busy. You've played on something like 5,000 song titles. You've recorded 27 of your own records, six compilation albums. You've launched a textbook for guitar students. You've worked with people like Phil Collins and Tina Turner, Neil Sedaka, Todd Rundgren. Amazing. Yeah, it was fantastic. I'm a passionate musician in music. I love music. That's why I'm playing. And we're still working. Our subject now is to save the climate, to save the earth. Yeah. Thank you for your music, Jana Schaffer. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much yourselves. Thank you, Stanley. Next up, the Canadian members of Five Man Electrical Band tell us all about their biggest hit. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. You know what time it is, right? Call me one hit wonder. Curse me to the day I die. One hit wonder. I hit the blunt and just wonder. You might remember the Five Man Electrical Band as one of Canada's best loved and hardest working rock and roll bands from the 60s and 70s. They were originally called the Staccatos, and the band is best known for their 1971 anti establishment hit, Signs. The band has never stopped playing together since those early days. They still draw huge crowds and standing ovations wherever they go. Let me introduce you to two of its members, Steve Hollingworth and Mike Creppen, who are happy to take us back to where it all began. First thing we should say is that we don't go back right to the beginning. I go back like 25 years now with this band as the drummer and singer, and and Mike, you're kind of the newbie now. Okay. We have a lot of music well, Yeah. Take us back to how it all started for you. Well, you know, I, I was doing music in L.A. We're in Ottawa here in Canada. I was uh, living in L.A. I moved there a couple of times back and forth doing some music stuff, songwriting and singing. And the second time I moved back, I'd known most of the guys in Five Man Electrical Band for quite a few years and had done some recording, some television work and stuff. But they're one of the original members, the first guy to leave. So I got an offer from Les Emerson to join those guys, and that was back in 98. I was always a big fan. Yeah. Way before even Five Man Electro Band, they were a band, they were called the Staccatos originally. I don't know if you know that, as a Canadian band, and a very, very big band in Canada back in the day. So I was a long, long-time fan, and I just thought, 
It's unbelievable because I love the music. I was a fan, and that's kind of how it started. set in a Sears catalog, a little like a toy drum set. And I just said to my dad, that looks pretty cool. I think I'd like to try that. And that's that really, that's how it started. It was even before Ringo. And I think it was the next year the Beatles came. And then it just got really cool from there on in. I was doing drum lessons and I loved the drums and uh, I just really took to it. And then the Beatles happened. I became such a huge, like everybody else in the world, so smitten. And Ringo was just the coolest guy ever. So Five Man Electrical Band, I don't know how many people know, but they were actually one of Canada's best loved and hardest working rock and roll bands back in the 60s and 70s. And as you said, they were formed in Ottawa in Ontario in 1964 as the Staccatos. How did they first gain national recognition there? Basically, you know, they started off as a local band and uh, then went to Toronto and expanded their name. And very shortly after, they became... uh, the number one band in Canada with several big, big hits. They played for the Queen of England, God bless her soul, for our centennial in 1967. And they, and they had the number one hit. It was a song called Half Past Midnight. They were co-number one band in in Canada with the Guess Who. They yeah. were really the only two bands that were doing this, really made, started to make things happen for Canadian music. Yeah, and they actually did an album for a co- as a Coca-Cola promotion yeah. where you'd open up a Coke bottle Coke and you, bottle. you could take a little plastic peel. Uh-huh. And if you saved up, I think it was 10 and sent it off to Coca-Cola with $1, they would send you an album with one side would be the Staccatos. Staccatos were on side A, actually. Yes, the, and, and the guests guess who were on, on side B. B. And today, it's rare and it's a huge collector's item. We didn't have that. <laughs> they were known as the Staccatos then. When did the name change come about? They'd been recording in the U.S., actually at the Capitol Tower in L.A., had done some recordings there. As the Staccatos, they changed the name when Pedro, who's still playing with us, joined yeah. the band around 69. I just know they needed a, a, a cooler name for that era than the Staccatos. So they came up with Five Man Electrical Band, and it was actually the name of a song. There's a song called Five Man Electrical Band, which was on the Goodbyes and Butterflies album. It was their bass player that said, why don't we just, they couldn't think of a name, why don't we come up and just use this song that you wrote, Five Man Electrical Band. Band. So it became sort of the title track for the album, and that's kind of how all that started. Wow. And were there there actually five people in the band? Yes, there was. It was always Five Man Electrical Band. It's only now we're playing with seven. Seven. (laughs) They hadn't really cracked it big until they had that massive hit, Signs, though, had that? Signs, That's right. Tell me the story around Signs. First of all, I just wanted to say they were on the road, and those guys were getting to the point. They were pretty road-weary. They'd been doing it for quite a while as the Staccatos, and I think they're almost getting ready to throw on the towel, and Signs just went bananas. 
Yeah. Like they were in playing at the Detroit Jefferson Airplane and they got the news from one of their publicists yes. or whatever in New York. It was kind of like, guess what, guys? You have a song that's going bananas. It's going crazy everywhere. So by the time they got to Cobo Hall in Detroit to play with Jefferson Airplane, everybody was going crazy over this song. And the sign said, long-haired freaky people need not apply. So I took my hair up under my hat I went in to ask him why He said you look like a fine upstanding young man I think you do So I took off my hat I said imagine that Me working for you Whoa. Sign, sign Everywhere a sign Blocking out your scenery Breaking my mind Do this, don't do that Can't you read the sign? keyboard player who's still playing with us. The way he tells the story is that they were driving to Chicago. All of them were in the car together and they were driving and uh, basically the DJ said he played It's Too Late by Carol King as this is today's number one, but tomorrow's number one is Signs by Five Man Electrical Band and yeah. they stopped the car and they got out and they were all Wooting and hooting and woo. Doing an Irish jig up the side of the road. Exactly. <laughs> it was a phenomenal song. Who oh, wrote it right. and, and what were they writing about? Well, it was Les Emerson that wrote the song. And it's kind of a, a protest song, a, sort of from that era, the counterculture, you know, the hippie movement and all that. And it was inspired by their travels through the U.S. On Route 66. On Route 66 specifically, Les was seeing all these signs coming up, signs to do this and you can't do that, yeah, isn't yeah. that? And that's sort of what inspired it. So I guess that kind of got written on the road. Yeah, it got written on the road. and. There, there, there's a couple of other nuances within the song that actually have a local tie to Ottawa, a certain bar in Ottawa. And the line is, you got to have a membership card to get inside. And that had to do with a particular bar that the, the Staccatos were the house band at. And it was a golf course. And if a member was golfing, the non-members couldn't get in. So they came up with this thing that for the cost of $1, the guest could be a member for one day. And that's where that line said, the sign said you gotta have a membership card to get inside. Now hey you, mister, can't you read? You've got to have a certain tie to get a seat. You can't even watch, no, you can't eat. You ain't supposed to be here. Sign said you got to have a membership card to get inside. largely about Route 66 and their travels and how the signs got in the way of the beauty of the USA. Anybody who's been through any of the highways or through the US would know exactly what you're talking about there. And what, yeah. happened, to what happened to him? Well, Les was, uh, was my best friend and unfortunately we lost him to COVID. Just recently. In, and we were in the studio making new music. I got COVID. Uh, our, our bass player, Rick, got COVID. And it, it took Les out. A rather sad situation. Les actually had another ailment. We were opening for Tom Cochran in Regina. He couldn't make the trip. And basically, the guys came to me and said, would you be able to cover Les's parts? And I called Les and said, hey, you're okay with this? And he said, oh, man, of course. Of course I am. But up until that time, he'd still been playing with Five Man Electrical Band. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And the other original members? Ted is still playing with us, and most of the rest have kind of retired and stuff, you know. So the, the, the band as it is now, most of us have been playing together for like 25 years for me. I sing a lot of the lead vocals in the night. Yeah. Mike is singing a lot of the lead vocals, yeah. and we kind of toss it all around. So that's what we've been doing. We played a few times, and uh, we actually had a fantastic, uh, here in Ottawa, uh, an evening for Les Emerson and Jeff Keith. I don't know if you've spoken to Jeff before, Tesla. They had a big, big hit with Signs back in the 90s. They re-released Signs. They re had a huge, monstrous hit. Oh, it went to number eight on Billboard. Jeff came up and 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 did the tribute show with us for, for Les. So it was a, a wonderful night. I think Les would have loved it, you know? Yeah. So when you guys go out and play, what's on your set list? Apart from that one song, did you have any other hits? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's many, many hits. Absolutely right. It was a, a big, big hit, hit in there. the U.S. Um, in Canada. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm a stranger here. Stranger here. Money back here. Oh, and another one that John Kay and Steppenwolf, they had a big hit uh, with, with, with a song that we still play called Moonshine, yeah. Friend of Mine. So that was a kind of a hit for Five Man Electrical Band. And then John Kay picked it up a few years later and had a hit. Yeah. Moonshine. 
this whole time. You, you haven't yeah. had a hiatus at all. Yeah, yeah, we've never stopped playing. Yeah, yeah. And the, the band, like, even with Les's passing, has been incredibly received because we're celebrating his music. music. You know, he was the main composer of the Flatland Electrical Band. The band is being very, very well, well received, received, as is now. And like I say, it's it's we're celebrating uh, we're celebrating his music. He's a member of the Canadian uh, Songwriting Hall of Fame, and we're moving it forward. A lot of Canadian bands complain that they're not taken as seriously across the border. But that's obviously not the story with you. You're telling me you've been re really well received in the US. Oh yeah, for sure. And and they were way back when signs broke and so and absolutely right those songs were, were really starting to take off. They were yeah. always well received. They played with so many great bands back yeah. then. Sly and the Family Stone, the Almond Brothers, Brothers, you name it. We were all saying to him, bless. You've got to write a book about all, all of the experiences of the Five Man because he was there from day one. And uh, he never got to a book, but he's got some great new songs. Oh. And we're going to finish those recordings. We started them a couple of years back. There'll be a new album yeah. at some point. Which of the Five Man Electrical Band hits would you like us to go out on? Signs for Change. That was something that came up with the Friends of the Earth. And they approached me about 10 years ago about redoing signs, but for the environment with new lyrics. So Les wrote all new lyrics about yeah. trying to save the planet. We came up with a new arrangement. We had the one of the greatest record producers in the world join us. He did all Jimi Hendrix's stuff, Led Zeppelin, Santana, Eric Clapton, Woodstock. Eddie yeah. Kramer was the guy who recorded all the music at Woodstock for that album. It started out as a little tiny thing from this grassroots movement. They wanted to do a, like a local sort of a radio ad. And I thought to myself, let's shoot this in the studio. And we did. And the signs said the whole world's changing. Temperatures on the rise. Some people say they still won't believe it till they see it with their own two eyes. Well, you better take a look around you. The evidence is everywhere. Global warming is just another one of the chaos that's waiting out there. Hey! Signs, signs, we gotta be the signs. The planet that we're living on is yours and mine. And if we wanna keep it alive, we gotta read the signs. sounds like science very much of course the same chords and melody but it's all new lyrics about saving the planet and the environment so yeah. les did a, an absolutely incredible spectacular job. job yeah awesome which is your favorite song to do i would have to say my favorite after science would be i'm a stranger here yeah that which is a great great song yeah and you know he he was like way ahead of his time you know, in the sense, uh, he used to write it, he had a trilogy of strange songs. And I'm a Stranger here is about an alien visiting the earth and bewildered with how we're screwing it up. Well, I'm a stranger here in this place called very conscious of the you know the social and political and ecological uh, state of the world and he, he really just his stuff made was statements pretty, his stuff was pretty topical i mean yeah. early on in the staccatos yes there was lots of boy girl tune la 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 romance stuff but he he was a pretty topical guy real yeah. smart yeah smart uh, writer mike crippen uh, steve hollingworth great chatting with you thank you so much for your time and telling us all about the five-man electrical band 
And congratulations on keeping Les's legacy alive. Thank you so much for, for having us, inviting us here. Love the accent as well. You betcha. Bye-bye. Stick around, y'all. Next, we head to Nashville to catch up with singer-songwriter Kelly Lang. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Great to have you here. I hope you're having a good time. I really want to thank Jade from Nashville in Tennessee for bringing us our next guest. Kelly Lang is a singer-songwriter who's always grown up around music. Her dad was the longtime road manager for superstar Conway Twitty. Today, she's enjoying a stellar career. As you'll hear, she's also married to country star T.G. Shepherd. She's a breast cancer survivor and has a book out and a new song to help others who are struggling with the disease. You've got quite a story to tell, lady, haven't you? Did your dad discover your talent? You know, honestly, it was quite the opposite. I was really witnessing Conway when, from a stage perspective. I was able to sit on stage and watch how the audience responded to him. And I loved it. He didn't even have to say a word. He just stood there and they were just like in love with his music, of course, you know, but his energy. I can almost hear the stillness as it yields to the sound of your heart beating. I can almost hear the echo of the thoughts that I know you must be thinking. Bum, bum, bum. And I can feel your body tremble as you wonder what this moment holds in store. Bum, bum, bum. And as I put my arms around you, I can tell you've never been this far before. I started writing at a very young age, like six or seven years old. My parents did not want me in this business. They tried and begged so hard to keep me from being in the business, but my passion was so big that I just really wanted to feel that, what Conway was feeling. Dad was actually the road manager for Conway Twitty, wasn't he? Did he take you out a lot with him? Not really. I was able to see Conway perform probably thousands of times. It wasn't that I necessarily was able to go on the road with him, but I started my musical career very early and I became an opening act for most every country artist that was ever in Nashville. Talk about being young. You actually recorded your first single at the age of 15. I did. He was a cowboy, and I was just a girl. I was barely 15, he was a man of the world. And everybody said to me, girl, you gotta wait a while. But he just hit his dance and had his smile. And he said, Sandy, I don't think that I necessarily was the most talented or the best singer, but I was the most tenacious. And I think that pays off sometimes. And I, and I bet you had a whole lot of confidence about you too, right? You know, ignorant confidence. You know, I look back on videos <laughs> and I'm like, what was I thinking? Oh my God, you know, but there was a lovely innocence about my performances that I think was infectious. When I see somebody else that lives like that, I, I want some of that, you know, I, I, I love to yeah. be around happy people. Was there much competition around for you as a teenager? That's an excellent question. Nobody's ever asked that of me. Not really. It was a very strange thing. I, I had a few girls that were coming up around the same time. I realized the effect of competition when I did Star Search and realized, wow, that it can be vicious. Yeah. So that was a harsh lesson for me. I wasn't into that part of it. Yeah. Country music seems to welcome female singers a whole lot more than other genres of music. I've been doing this show for several years, and I have to tell you the percentage of women that I interview that are involved is so small. Am I correct that country is more welcoming for women? 
I would say on an overall scale, yes, it's definitely male heavy, but the beautiful women like Shania Twain or, or Dolly or, you know, people like that have, that have come before and, and knocked down a lot of those barriers, they made it possible to, to where it's not even as ageist as it once was at this point. I can think of younger days when living for my life was everything a girl could want to do. I can never see tomorrow I was never told about the sorrow sun from shining what makes the world go around and how can you mend this broken man how can a loser ever win please help me mend my broken heart and Kelly Lang, you've performed with a whole lot of notable people, many of whom we claim as our own, as Australians. So people like Barry Gibb and the late Olivia Newton-John. A lot of the music that you've written has been recorded by some incredible people also. Well, one of my highlights of my life was I sang on the Grand Ole Opry with Barry Gibb. And I don't know if you all are familiar with how big a deal that is, but it's incredible. There probably are many people listening who actually don't know about that. I don't think I'm even aware of the extent of the Grand Ole Opry's powers. When you're in country music, it is the highlight of your career to be able to play that stage. It's gone back almost 100 years now. It's a very deep, traditional place. to be. It's historic. Uh, anybody that's anybody that has it touched any lives in country music, that's where they go and they feel like they have made it. I was fortunate enough to be able to come to your beautiful country and tour with Barry and Olivia there. They came over to celebrate BG Way. They dedicated the whole, I guess it was like an alleyway park, I guess, for the Bee Gees. And then we went on to Melbourne to celebrate Olivia's hospital there. You know, when you travel with them, it's in your country specifically, it's like traveling with royalty. It, I remember riding in the car with Olivia and she was going, that's where I went to school and that's where I had lunch with so-and-so. And I'm like, wow, who gets to do that? You know, so <laughs> I've lived a surreal life. So just before we leave Sir Barry Gibb and Dame Olivia, you were invited by Barry Gibb to perform Islands in the Stream in honour of Kenny Rogers, in honour of his induction into the Country Music Hall of Fame. That must have been an incredible experience. It was awesome. I'm a big Kenny Rogers fan and he's such a nice guy and he was just so kind and, and loving and didn't take himself very seriously at all. So for me to be asked not only by Barry to sing the song that he wrote for Kenny, Nobody knew he was performing that night. So Kenny was just like in total shock when we walked out on stage. Everybody in Nashville is so enamored by Barry Gibb that they are in shock, they can't even speak. And I was fortunate to be able to introduce Garth Brooks to Barry that night, and Garth was losing his mind. He couldn't what? believe he was in the presence of such an amazing songwriter and, and artist. And somebody like Garth Brooks, who's written a, a, a hundred and more hits himself, is still enamored with Barry Gibb. One thing I love about this music business is that everybody has a hero. Everybody's got somebody they look up to and, and Barry just happens to be who Garth thought was just everything. So it was it was really cool to make that happen. Who would you say is yours? Gladys Knight is a hero of mine. I really love her music. I love her style. And I just recorded Midnight Train to Georgia, which was a big hit of hers in honor of her. He's going back to find 
I really try to emulate some of the, the things that you would wish that were in there, like the pip sound. I'm doing what I enjoy instead of what I'm being told to do. So it's kind of kind of naughty in a way, but I enjoy it. Hey, that's the way we should all live, isn't it? <laughs> do what we enjoy, not what we're told to do. I like that. So the album is called Old Soul 2. Is that a reflection on how you feel about yourself? Yeah, actually it is. I recorded an album called Old Soul, and it was just a collection of songs that I loved. And, and it was eye-opening to me how much people really wanted to venture back into a time when they maybe had their first love or when they were in school. And so I realized I didn't get to a lot of the songs in that particular album. And so volume two is just a, another render of that. It's stuff like uh, You're So Vain and What's Love Got to Do With It and Take Your Breath Away. It's songs like that that you know but just my versions. Kelly Lang has also released a song devoted to breast cancer awareness. She's a survivor and wants to push out a positive message. The song's called Life Sentence. Cold table, bright lights, counting back from ten. Wake from a foggy dream just to hear it's back again. Doctors paint the darkest news But instead of death, I'm gonna choose A When I was diagnosed with breast cancer 17 years ago, people could have thought of that as a death sentence actually. And, and I just decided to switch my thought process around and realize I could really appreciate life more and, and use the good china today and burn the good candles. And so I wrote a song about it. So what's your message? It's gonna be okay. There's so many things out now that maybe they didn't even have when I was going through it. If I can get through it, I'm a lightweight. <laughs> I mean, I really am. If I can get through this, anybody can. I wrote a book, Sandy, called I'm Not Going Anywhere, and it really goes through the whole adventure with me, ups and downs, and yet ups again. You know, my life didn't end with breast cancer. Yeah. Kelly Lang, a lot of your songs have been recorded by some incredible artists, people like Jerry Lee Lewis, Crystal Gale, the late BJ Thomas, and the Oak Ridge Boys. How does that feel for you? Are you kidding? It's great. <laughs> I was even more fortunate to be in the studio when they recorded them. There was a, a big project that was going on with my husband. His name is T.G. Shepard. He's a country artist as well. I had a few songs that I thought might be good for the project, but I wasn't going to pitch my songs. Like, that would be weird, you know? But I did turn them in anonymously to the producer. He chose 10 of my songs for that project. He didn't, had no clue that I was uh, the writer of these. And Oak Ridge Boys ended up cutting a song called Down on My Knees, BJ recorded a song called 100% Chance of Pain. Jerry Lee Lewis, TG and I actually wrote a song called The Killer, his nickname being The Killer. To be in the studio with him was really magic. They don't call me the killer for nothing. time I heard him sing I was riding around in the Memphis rain That's when I heard a whole lot of shaking going on I knew my life had changed from that moment on To hear him sing down into the 
pop stars that night But he stole the show He burned that piano down When he played great balls of fire Lang's quite an inspiration, isn't she? I hope you'll check out her book, I'm Not Going Anywhere, and her latest song releases. And that's it from me now. If you've requested a guest, stand by, they're coming up. Anyway, take care till we meet again. I'll look forward to being back in your company again, same time next week. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. You're gone away It's a beautiful day